Welcome back to episode five of Significant Lots. We had an exciting weekend with the auction season. Half the team was actually in New York for it. And so I guess uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. But touching base, how is everybody's last week gone? It's great. Thank Thanks, you, Charlie. It's going okay, good. What about Thanks. you? Did you win anything over the weekend? Tony. No, I didn't. <laughs> but I did get to meet Tony, so I feel like a winner. Oh, well, you can't be too too distraught over the watch world after an interaction with Tony, I'm sure. Lost some watches, but so, gained a fun. lifelong friend. So that's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. No, it was all it's all about. You know, they, they run a good show. So, you know, I got to see a couple of friends that came in from Geneva that I haven't seen since pre-pandemic. So that was definitely a highlight. That's exciting. Eric, did you uh, just stay online and participate like a third class citizen or did you fly in for a day? Uh, I decided to uh, stay back this time. We had my daughter Gemma's baptism on Sunday, but I did certainly follow the madness and bid on a few things during the course of the week. So it was a strong week for watches, I will say. Tony, you were actually in the city and this was your first New York auction. I really enjoyed the coverage. So um, I guess I was just kind of curious, what was the weekend like? And you know, mind telling us a little bit of the highlights and, and some of the people that you ran into? Well, obviously meeting Gabe, a big highlight on Sunday, the last day of the auction coverage, but it was fun to be there for the long weekend. I went to Phillips both days, went to a reception at Phillips, hit up the preview as well. So a lot of fun to meet a variety of people. I met probably dozens of collectors, specialists, everyone in the world of watches over the over the few days I was there, saw tons of crazy independent watches, vintage watches, everything Phillips was offering, but also just the stuff on collector's wrist. So it was really fun to meet a lot of New York-based collectors and people that had come in from around the country to, to see the auction. So it was really fun to meet these people I'd only interacted with online over the course of the pandemic, really, and see the watch community come to life, I guess, because so much of the time we just interact on Instagram and via comments and stuff. So it was really fun to be able to meet all of the people. And that was probably the highlight at the end of the day. The watches were cool, obviously. Seeing the Tiffany go for 6.3 million or whatever it was, was fun. It was fun to be in the room for for such an event like that. But at the end of the day, the the people I was able to meet were the, the thing I'll take away. Um, it's always kind of a fish out, out of water moment for me when I go to New York. I don't go that much, but you know, a little Midwestern kid going to the big city to cover watches. So it's always fun. And I enjoyed it and can't wait to go back. Hopefully we'll go to Geneva one day as well. I think it was fun to go to Phillips. You know, they've got a new place on Park Avenue now. It's a nice atrium set up and the preview is there. And then it's kind of surprising, actually. It was surprising to me that I went to the preview on Friday, went to a reception there, and then the next day they kind of tear it down and that's where they set up the auction space and you know they set out their folding chairs and stuff like that and that's where they are auctioning off you know million dollar watches and that's where the event of the year is being held so it's kind of funny kind of jarring to see that that's how it's done but it was really cool to to be able to be there in person and see you know the underbidder on the tiffany lot was in the room and kind of a showman um you know was kind of on the phone he was talking to specialists during the sale and Eventually, the lot went to a New York buyer online, but it was fun to watch the whole thing happen in person. And I mentioned this in the article I wrote, but to me, there was kind of a whole levity to the situation. I mean, the watch was announced literally five days before, and then here we are spending and bidding $6 million on it. And it kind of felt like everyone was there were chuckles in the room at one point every time it went over $5 million, I would say. And there were subsequent bids. Everyone was kind of chuckling in the room, like, isn't this crazy how this could happen? And uh, Alexander Arnault, who's now, I believe, the VP of Tiffany and the son of Bernard Arnault, who, who owns LVMH, gave a little fist pump as the watch went over $5 million. So obviously that was kind of one of the highlights of the week, but it was fun to see after that, after people filled out and we really filed out and we really got down to business and the 160 plus other lots to follow there. I think by the end of the two days, Gabe and I and a few other really passionate, ridiculous collectors were, were there to watch one six, lot 164 Hammer, but it was fun to be there throughout the course of the few days and just see how an auction is run. That's awesome. And regarding the uh, the underbidder in the room, was that the guy who ended up getting uh, relegated to go get breakfast at Tiffany's or was that somebody else? I don't know. I can speak to the fact that I had lunch with him and a few others afterwards. And he said he had no regrets. After $5 million, it's it was all gravy for him. So 
He said he didn't have any regrets. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I don't know if he was. How could you with the cool diamond right. uh, Nautilus on your wrist, right? <laughs> That's right. If you look at my photo report, he's got a diamond Nautilus. I can't even remember the reference, but you know, I think he's doing all right in the paddock collecting side of things, even without the Tiffany. And of course, I think we saw, <laughs> it's funny how you know a week ago it was announced, and then now we see one on Jay-Z's wrists in the wild. So it's funny how quickly the story has has kind of developed and how Tiffany and Paddock and Phillips were able to create such a train of hype in a matter of weeks is, is pretty wild. In one week. Oh my God. Yeah, in one week. Announced yeah. on Monday. Matter of days, yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. I mean, Jay, Jay-Z and Beyonce are, are involved in the Tiffany, um, you know, marketing as of lately. So hopefully he wasn't the New York collector that had to spend the money on it, but we'll see. We'll see if, if that's pocket change to Jay or if he was allocated. I'm one. sure he was. And we'll keep our fingers crossed for the, the other uh, underbidder that Terry, uh, gives him a little bit of slack and gives him one of those 170. I'm sure Jay-Z was given it or offered it at retail. And uh, I have a... I mean, getting it at retail is a gift, basically. But it would be kind of funny um, after he and Jay, or Beyonce do this big campaign, kind of hassling him for $50,000 would be kind of a weird conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, he is an investor. Maybe he got one to rock, one to stock. So you never know. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They bought, didn't LVMH buy his champagne brand or something like that? I can't keep track of all of his business endeavors nowadays, but I yeah. think his champagne brand may have been acquired by them. And I'm sure he's he's got some stock as well, which is much more valuable than a watch, as any astute investor will tell you. <laughs> yeah, he, he's been collecting like Vacherons and crazy stuff since the early 2000s. So it's kind of cool to see his collection over the last, you know, 20 years. I guess uh, one of the things you were you were discussing, I, I liked the uh, the article, so I appreciate you know kind of showing the photo report. Was that the first time you and uh, James linked up by chance? That's right. So James waitlisted on Instagram, did a great Hodinky photo report, and I hung out with him and some of the other Hodinky folks, some of the other Phillips folks, even um, throughout the weekend. So it was great to watch it with the Hodinky people. Logan Baker wrote a great article on Hodinky as well. And we were kind of sitting together for most of the two days. So it was fun to compare notes afterwards on our different takeaways. We had some, some of them were the same, some of them were different. He picked up on things I didn't and vice versa in the room. So it was fun to see his 16 takeaways. I had something like 13, but um, yeah, really fun to meet all of those guys and watch the auction with a bunch of other nerdy collectors for sure. I think he just yeah, did six. Awesome. I think he just did 16 because yours came out first, Tony, and you were 13. after they saw that his editor was like all right logan you gotta get three more at least buddy like (laughs) shout out to shout out to logan for kind of spearheading the uh auction coverage over the last few weeks uh gabe so you briefly touched on you briefly touched on uh attending the phillips auction in person any other things that were kind of uh standouts or, or fun things that you encountered over the week this was a little bit of a different New York Phillips auction because usually it's been during the week on a evening. So this was the first weekend one and also it was broken up into two. Uh, I don't I don't necessarily think that was perhaps the right move because uh, – and I purposely didn't show up on Saturday because it was a zoo apparently. And Sunday it was – there, you know, there were there was a lot of room, so and I thought that there was it might have been a little bit light on some of the action on uh, Sunday because a lot of the maybe the people who were there for some of the highlight lots on Saturday wouldn't show up the next day, um, so I think that was an interesting change in format for them, and I. You know, my two cents is I think we should go back to the weekday evening uh, with less watches. That way we can bang it out the whole thing in three hours instead of uh, spreading it out. And I think particularly this auction season was grueling. It's like running a, two marathons every weekend with all of these uh, sales. Um, it was it was a bit heavy on the lots, but I thought it was interesting that the Sunday – actually went longer than the Saturday and Saturday had, you know, the, the big Tiffany blue craziness and still it was, you know, with all the other big lots that day, it still went uh, faster than on Sunday, which had uh, some lower priced lots. Um, You know, I think, I think it's, it was, it was a nice, it was a nice thing to have a New York sale in person again. Uh, it was cool. They run a good show. They run a good, you know, a good sale. I thought it was a great sale, very interestingly curated. But if we could 
cut the lots in half maybe and do it on a weekend on a weekday evening so that way you know more people can potentially attend i think it might be better for for everyone yeah it was um a lot of lots there were obviously some standouts i thought there was a lot of for phillips a lot of more mediocre condition pieces were not typically used to seeing in the auction some very subpar submariners for instance that you know typically they would reject in the past um i i think uh my big question for them is if they're just going to continue with the one auction every december or if they're they're going to ever do the two auction in new york uh cycle so that would be june and december and the broader question i think for for all the auction houses is whether it makes sense to jam you know three auctions twice a year into a one month uh time span because you've got geneva followed immediately by hong kong followed by new york and Something that we saw a lot at Christie's was that by the time our New York auctions came around, which were my baby, the people would literally be spent out from the previous two auctions. So for those that were kind of hunting for deals, New York was a ripe breeding ground to get great watches, you know, fresh to market original owner watches, whereas a lot of the pieces in Geneva and Hong Kong were from dealers, collectors, et cetera, not fresh to market. Um, but if I was running, you know, running a department, I would try to space out the auctions more. I've said this, you know, many times. And I think that the auctions that are off cycle, so Sotheby's has their Hong Kong auctions off cycle from, from Phillips and Christie's, which are end of November and end of May. Uh, Sotheby's has theirs in, in April and October as part of a broader luxury week that they do in Hong Kong, where it's all the different sales in Hong Kong together, handbags for, for Christie's, uh, Sotheby's doesn't do as much with that, but all the different art departments and, and jewels, uh, in one week in one convention center attached to a hotel that being off cycle benefits them because there's a lot of pent up demand from the months that precede. And also, you know, Monaco legend in October, they were ahead of everything else. And I think they really benefited because people had money they had collected over the months. So if you can be off cycle, I've seen art curial do extremely well being off cycle and Monte Carlo, uh, other Monaco and Monte Carlo auctions like pool, doing really well because they're they're kind of in the summer or in january when people are you know had a little break from from the madness of three auctions in four weeks um three auction cycles in fact so uh yeah that's a the broader question i guess but yeah the, the ones ahead, Eric, on the sorry. pro side to keeping them together is you can have the the watches for hong kong and new york in Geneva for collectors that go there to preview the highlight lots. Uh, it's called the Carne, where they bring in the watches. The specialist will carry them typically in, in a, a suitcase that they have to have on them. And they might be carrying several million dollars of watches in business class or first class. And no one knows what's in this little crappy uh, roll on suitcase. But, um, you know, the positive is people can kind of preview all those lots there and not necessarily have to go to Hong Kong and New York. And that Carne system's interesting because I, I did that as well. You you have to register everything. So obviously they, it's not taxed upon arrival, but they'll check every watch when it comes in and when it goes and kind of look at the list uh, in Geneva, for instance. That's obviously the pro side, but I think there's still ways around it to do previews. Obviously, Christie's and Phillips and Sotheby's do that. They'll bring the watches around on Carnet and it's not really that more, that much more expensive depending on the time of year. And I think would benefit the auction houses themselves in terms of bigger results if it's not so compressed in, into one month. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, if you see your friendly uh, auction house specialist with a briefcase in the airport <laughs> and it's uh, usually a real discreetly lot. handcuffed to their, yeah, <laughs> discreetly handcuffed handcuffed to their wrist, either. I mean... <laughs> 
you might want to go up and uh, spark up a conversation and see if you can have an impromptu uh, preview viewing the, session. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've talked recently about how Hong Kong gets lost often in America, at least because it happens at Thanksgiving weekend. But I was thinking about this before we hopped on Mike because in Philip's press release, they mentioned they sold $36 million worth of watches in New York. They sold $210 million over the year. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to contextualize that in terms of how much they're, how much product they're moving in terms of other pre-owned or vintage dealers. And obviously, with the internet, social media, all of that type of stuff, we sort of demand 24-7 watch content, watch product, everything else. And Philips and other auction houses have things like Philips Perpetual, where they're starting to offer um, watches in a more boutique style thing. And I'm just wondering as they, if they see, if you, when you were at an auction house, saw things like Watchbox as competitors, and if that impacts the way you think about how to set up your auctions and your seasons and all of that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a few thoughts on that front first, you know, as I alluded to, I think in maybe episode three, just the amount of money that's flowing into the watch business side is unprecedented. Obviously Watchbox, they're 165 million dollar raise from Michael Jordan, Giannis, Mark Lazary, Devin Booker, all these players, uh, and, and everything else. I mean, billions of dollars are going into watches, secondhand pre-owned watches. And, um, that is no doubt part of what is causing the rise in prices because, you know, I think about a hundred million dollars of the watch box investment is to go buy watches. So an inventory, so of course that's going to lead to prices jacking up on the secondary market because they have money and they have to spend it probably within a certain amount of time and then they have to resell it. So um, that's been the case for several years. Watchfinder was kind of the first to sell at a big number, maybe close to $300 million several years ago to Richemont. Um, and uh, obviously just, the Crown and Caliber Hodinkee deal, um, Crown of 24, which is more of a platform play, but they're, they're buying watches now as well uh, and send an email out that they're selling their own inventory. So um, I think uh, I, I was asked like, how are the auction houses, which are kind of the OG uh, player in the, in the collectible and vintage watch field going to respond and that was, you know, part of what I was trying to solve when I was, when I was at Christie's and, um, I don't want to sound like Al Gore and uh, I invented the internet or whatever. And I really <laughs> took control, but I did really help push Christie's to do online only auctions. Uh, we started actually with a vintage Cartier auction in late 2015, uh, when no one cared about vintage Cartier, but we had a nice collection and, uh, it was our first online-only auction, and that was because I saw the Christie's watch shop not really working uh, when I joined it. It had already been in existence for over a year. You were getting consignments. It was off-brand to really be doing fixed prices. About half the watches wouldn't sell in a consignment period, and you've done all this work taking photographs, cataloging them. Uh, and then having to ship them back and you essentially have lost several hundred dollars per watch that doesn't sell in terms of time and photography. Um, so someone asked me, what about, you know, Phillips Perpetual, things like that. From what I see online, I wouldn't call it a loss leader, but it's not going to be profitable in the same way that a specific pre-owned secondary market seller is going to be. It's like a nice client service and it's the same for Christie's when they have, you know, a selection of private sale watches out. It's very little of the business. It's very different than the private treaty private sale where you might be selling a multi-million dollar $24.99 or something like that, where obviously there's real profit there, probably 10% plus margin. So you're looking at several hundred thousand dollars on a, you know, two million plus dollar watch. But um you know, offering around secondary, you know, brand new Daytonas or stuff like that. Like you can have that little shop in London and you'll sell some watches, but it's not going to pay anyone's salary at the end of the day if you're approaching it like a business. So for, for Phillips, it's just a band Christie's and Sotheby's. It's about just getting the average amount 
the average sale price per watch higher. Thankfully, the watch market and watch gods are smiling <laughs> upon the watch market, and that that's gone up. I never thought we would see two hundred million dollars for an auction house in one year, and it really wasn't because they've done more watches. I don't. You could add up the the five auctions they've done. I'm guessing it's you know what is it five five thousand it would be five two hundred lot auctions roughly so over a thousand watches and um and you've got a massive uh average price per watch sold uh so i think um you know it's the same i really feel like the auction houses are kind of capped at the total amount of watches that can pass through their hands uh, you know, one to 2000 watches. When I was at Christie's, it was about 2000 watches per year with all the online auctions. And that was kind of 30 people dedicated to the watch department, including administrators, business managers, etc. And I don't think you can really scale beyond that very well. Um, so, you know, they're not going to be selling probably a billion dollars of watches unless they get a huge collection like the Sandro Frattini collection, My Time, the book uh, Christie's published, who's got, you know, 2,000 watches. And uh, I don't know what that collection's worth, certainly several hundred million dollars at least, you know, maybe in this market north of $500 million. But, uh, you know, that if, if they, he suddenly wanted to sell everything in one year, yeah, that would be great for an auction house. <laughs> yeah, I think... They're not going to compete in the same way with a pre-owned seller. On the demand side of things, I saw statistics that Philips had 600 registered bidders for the entire year of 2015, and they had over 10,000 this year. That's incredible. They had 2,300 in New York this past weekend. Yeah. So it's kind of wild to think about that it's grown that much, but someone pointed out to me that 2,300, when you think about it, over 164 lots... And a good amount of those, I think it was three or 400 were registered probably only for the one T lot. It feels like quite a low number actually to kind of be setting up quote unquote market prices, if you will. Um, and I think it kind of feels like there's still a lot of room to grow for auctions than maybe the watch industry entirely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still very bullish on watches overall, and we could be talking about how if we could only go back to the year 2021 to have bought watches, you know, when do fours are $10 million instead of $800,000 at auction simplicities, uh, stuff like that. That's certainly possible. One of those things that would supercharge the, the watch collecting market would be grading. That would have pros and cons, but having watches sealed up like PSA seals up sports cards, you could imagine as soon as that happens, values going up 4x, which they did with paper currency when they began grading paper currency or stamps or other things. So um, in comic books, all that stuff, that would make it even more an investment class, which it's already become. But uh but that's negative too, because people just have their watches sealed, like double sealed uh, Patek Philippe's and just have them put away in the, in the safe deposit box instead of enjoying them. Uh, and, you know, it really transformed things. I guess to focus in on one of the brands that kind of had a little bit of a resurgence of last two years or so, there were about five Hoyers at the Phillips New York auction. All of them performed really well. I was, I was just uh, kind of interested to hear what you guys think of maybe the Hoyer market. Tony, being that you're a new Hoyer collector, uh, what was your takeaways from it? It was cool to see, I think, five lots, like you mentioned, at Phillips. Of course, the top one was the Full Loom Autavia 2446, which performed really well. And rightfully so, I think it hammered, or it all in was at $163,000 which is a really big number. I think it's probably, Eric would have to fact check me on this, but the biggest horror result of the year, probably since that Seafarer Octavia, is that it right, It was Eric? the biggest result of the year and the biggest result for one ever at auction for that model. Yeah, the, so the, I think it's really cool For the early see. 2446, yeah. So it was, it was awesome. Has so it was great the... to be able to see that watch in person, first of all. And then there were a few sort of more bread and butter type horror lots, I guess, a couple Carreras, and then a Abercrombie Seafarer as well. And then there was a super niche Hoyer with an MG car logo. It's a British car company. 
that came from a collector in the Hoyer community. So it was cool to see that one come up for auction and attracted a good amount of bidding in the room and online still, and ended up achieving a good number, which is cool to see, even though it's a pretty niche lot. And talking to the collector afterwards, he said something like, you know, there's probably three Hoyer collectors in the world that actually care about this thing. So it's cool to see that maybe they found this watch and bid it up to the point they did. Um, so for me, it was exciting to see sort of more of a, a collector's brand, I guess, like Hoyer get the attention like that, as opposed to just Rolex and Paddock and the Jorns and everything you everything else you see at auctions nowadays. I think one of my favorite Eric Wind memes from when that Eric Wind meme account was was active was something like, it's a, it's a quote from Eric's Horological Society of New York lecture where he says, there's more to life. To, than Rolex and Patek, but Hoyer doesn't pay the bills. Um, so yeah. It's cool. It's cool to see that um, it didn't necessarily pay the bills, right? I mean, $163,000 hardly makes a dent in Phillips's top line at the end of the day. And the other lots were all on, well under 100K, really. But, you know, it's kind of collector service in a way that they had a handful of Hoyers and some pretty niche ones as well in, in the auction. But I'd be curious to hear what, what Eric has to say about the market, of course. Yeah, I, I thought it's great to see uh, Phillips that I basically blame for destroying the Hoyer market and with their Hoyer Parade auction in 2017 kind of help as part of this Hoyer rebound. Uh, and, um, you know, first of all, you don't want too much on the quantity side. So five was was a nice number. Obviously, when you're sort creating the auction, it's not like you put aside five lots for Hoyers. You just look at what's coming in and if it's a good watch and and makes sense. But the quality of the the pieces was overall quite high, uh, obviously. And um, you know, it was nice in the broader auction catalog to see Hoyer do that. It's what I tried to do at at Christie's early on in, in 2015, have a nice selection of cool Hoyers and introduce people to the brand who are more into Rolex and Patek Philippe and be like, oh, these are cool watches. They have really cool colors. They have neat stories, functionality, obviously very well-crafted watches um, with great movements, etc. Certainly rock solid watches. So uh, it was great. You know, it, I was, uh, I've always loved the seafarers. You know, I got the one from Sotheby's that was a record setter earlier this year uh, in New York and uh, probably handle more seafarers than anyone uh, the last few years. So I, I like to see good, strong results on those. And then I contact all the people I sold them to and ask if they want to sell them after a result like that. And they say no, which is also gratifying that they want to keep them. Uh, but negative uh, for me because I'd like to resell them. So um, it was, uh, I thought it was very solid. Great, great for the market. You know, the MG Carrera sold publicly a couple years back for $13,000. You know, I think it was posted on Chrono Trader, found by a collector in the, the New York City area. And uh, this other collector bought it and had posted it, uh, you know, several times. The MG ones are interesting because I think they basically went to MG uh, dealers uh, and those gentlemen had their names put on them probably by Hoyer uh, as a custom order for MG. So it's not like they were watches that went to like race car drivers or anything like that, but I think that's cool. And um, obviously very easy to track them because they have the owner's name on the dial. <laughs> not too many watches do that. Um so uh, yeah, to see it go from thirteen thousand to thirty-two thousand in in a couple of years was was great. So the question, you know, I guess that you answered in a in a smaller uh, group on Saturday, but I guess to not um, to not kind of hide the answer is is Hoyer back and is Jeff Stein protected? Eric? <laughs> yeah, Charlie and I always joke about uh, protect Jeff Stein because I on. Friday live on Hodinkee back in 2017 when I was on with Kara, I said without 
you know, Jeff Stein, the Hoyer market would be like the Enicar market at that time. Now, the Enicar has its own own Jeff Stein with Martin in the Enicar book. Obviously, that came out well after that Friday Live episode in 2017. But, but I said, it, you know, if someone went back in time and killed Jeff Stein, <laughs> like the Terminator, it would be bad for the Hoyer market. So, um, I think uh, I was talking with Jeff, of course, after the auction. It's uh, we're all very happy. We want to see like stable. Most importantly, it's about people want buying the watches for the right reasons because they like them. And when you go back to 2017, before the the Phillips auction, he said he was getting emails every single day from people. Can I buy this? Should I buy this? Should I buy this? Just buying it because they felt they needed to own one, not because they were buying it for the right reasons. And, you know, just like any vintage watch community, there's a lot of uh, pitfalls. There's watches that are put together, incorrect, uh, you know, in bad condition, etc. And you have to study the watches and know them to know what's correct or not and go to resources like on the dash.com that uh, Jeff Stein created to help help you figure out what is correct or not. So um, it's, it's just good for the market to see interest growing and people buying them for the right reasons as they want a part of a broader collection of cool watches that they like wearing. transitioning into a different brand like rolex for instance uh gabriel were you were you going for a 1675 this weekend which which i might have heard yeah that's right i actually have known that watch for for a bit and i've always um really liked it and i and i i noticed that it's it's a great watch and uh, a lot of people didn't really pay attention to it and I thought there might be a deal there Um, and at the end it was a deal a little bit more than I wanted to spend for it but it was definitely um, you know cool chapter ring everything that you would want out of it and I actually think that it that market has softened a little bit because that, if I'm not mistaken, sold two years ago privately from the previous owner who I, who I know, and this sold for quite a bit under, it hammered for quite a bit under what that uh, the consigner paid for it from uh, our mutual friends. So, you know, I always like them. If a good one comes up, I hope there's a, uh, you know, there's a deal to be made in there. But that actually, I, I was actually trying to ask uh, Eric this yesterday because he posted a great 6542. And I never understood why prices on great 6542s haven't gone absolutely parabolic like we've seen with other things. Just in terms of rarity, coolness factor, the pussy galore, just everything. I, it's something I love. Um you know, I know they're hard to wear because everybody's scared about damaging the Bakelite, but I always wonder why that's not trading significantly higher. And you know, I remember in 2014, 2015, those were like, I don't know, 60s to 80s, 50 on the low side. And now they're right around the $100,000 mark. And they're not like some other Rolexes that we've seen that have just absolutely shot up. And I think that's kind of a miss for for the collecting community and i don't know if that's just because nobody wants to wear them because of the bakelite or i don't know why but i i think it's a great watch and you know again eric posted one this has nothing to do with the uh, auction but since we're talking about gmt's maybe maybe you can give us some insight on that eric yeah so th- thank you for the uh for being my hype man gabe uh the 6542 is certainly one of the most iconic uh Rolex references, that bezel is so special. I mean, it's unlike any other Rolex bezel because you get this dimensionality with the Bakelite and the, the fact that numbers are luminous inside that you obviously don't get with uh, later aluminum bezel insert watches, whether it's the, the sub or the GMT master. So um, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there's huge disparities between really great ones and and average condition ones, the vast majority have had their their bezels swapped or the bezels even relumed, which a lot of people don't know. Um, and their service bezels that had tritium in them, all kinds of weird stuff because of the the radium lawsuit. And if you're ever looking for arguably the most interesting Rolex ad ever, just Google the six five four two ad 
Odinki and this ad that I saw online that I sent to Steven, he posted several years back, but they were basically saying it's the only time we've ever had Rolex confirm production numbers for a watch publicly, but that only, you know, less than 600 watches, 6542s went, you know, to the the U.S. market. And, um, you know, it's not a, you know, not a common watch and anyone that sends it back will get it rectified, the issues <laughs> with the radioactivity. So very few kind of escaped uh, having having their parts, you know, replaced or reloomed. And uh, I think it's just, it is arguably the, the most interesting looking and, and iconic sport Rolex. Uh, so, yeah, I... I hope more people appreciate them. There's many, many pitfalls because so many are, are relumed or some, you know, of the earlier ones, the Geiger activity is off the charts. Uh, and if you're talking about, you know, like an early 60s sub, it might Geiger, uh, you know, say for one that has an exclamation point, which is kind of a mixture of, of tritium and radium, it's often under 10 microsieverts per hour, but I've seen 6542s that read over 3000 microsieverts per hour. So 300 X, uh, and even big crowns might be, you know, high one hundreds from the fifties. So it's, it is, you know, you do kind of question, uh, the health effects of wearing something like that on a continuous basis. Uh, let alone the, the bezels do crack, and that can obviously uh, have a huge effect on value. And I've I've met collectors who were just wearing their six five four two around, and the uh, <laughs> the bezel popped off, <laughs> and uh, you know that can be a fifty k part in really mint condition <laughs> just for the bake light bezel. So they were, you know, climbing, you know, retracing their steps everywhere outside trying to find this bezel. <laughs> <laughs> and basically tears streaming down their eyes looking for it. It's it's a tough. Eric, you I've got to... kind of a Rolex question or take I wanted to try out on you, I guess. Or maybe I'm just going to talk for a few minutes and then I want you to respond <laughs> to it. But I think it's interesting. Um, someone, again, Logan, we'll shout him out from Hodinkee, sent me a screenshot of the top 10 lots from Phillips this year. There's no Rolex in the top 10. And I think... Number 10 was the Omega that went for $3.1 million. So we're talking in the $3 million plus range of watches. There's no Rolex in there. Um, and it feels like for the past year, maybe Rolex has been overshadowed, at least at the high, high end by a lot of the independence, the FP Jorns, and a lot of the other things, even the pink on pink 1518 that we saw this week that went for $9.6 million. Um, some of these watches can achieve sort of those big record-breaking numbers, right? And we haven't seen, nor perhaps will we be able to see Rolexes achieve those types of numbers. I mean, if you look at sort of the 5 million and up range, maybe a handful of Rolexes have achieved those numbers, ones with provenance like the Paul Newman, Paul Newman, his 6263, the Bao Dai. And then in the past couple of years, the ones that have gone 3 million plus have been like, the unique Zenith Daytonas with lapis dials or Tahitian pearl dials. So it's just interesting to me, I guess, that at the high, high end, Rolex isn't able to compete with a lot of these other independents or the paddocks of the world. And I'm wondering, I think in the Hodinkee article I saw yesterday, you or Eric Koo maybe called Rolex a value proposition. And I'm wondering how much the market has, if not suffered, been impacted by a lot of the independence and the other stuff we've seen really take off in the past year or two. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, think I did. I said in contrast with everything else selling for crazy, crazy numbers, Rolex is beginning to look like a value proposition again for, for purchase on the vintage side. Um, so as a first point, Rolex typically does not bid at auction. You know, my, my sense is, not to throw shade at, at the crown, but that their collection of watches is junk. <laughs> so it, when I look at the photographs of of their, you know, examples of, of early GMTs, Explorers, things like that, almost everyone's relumed over polished 
and terrible. You can see them in this big Rolex book by Asseline, the, the Impossible Collection Rolex. They post them on their Instagram recently. They've begun posting some of their vintage pieces, and there's like five. They have a Lady Datejust, which looks cool with a really interesting bracelet, but that's not worth a lot of money. Uh, everyone else was was laughing about a red sub they posted with a service bezel insert, and it was funny to see all the collectors commenting on the Rolex Instagram, like, can't you afford afford to get a correct bezel insert on it instead of the super thin number bezel insert. Um, and people were kind of excited because last year they reportedly bought a few watches at auction at Antiquorum, uh, you know, a rose gold uh, 6034, maybe the Comex 1680 at Antiquorum for over 500K, which everyone was surprised by. Uh, one other watch, but you know, I'm not saying that you're encouraging them to to have market manipulation, but, you know, Patek Philippe has bought watches at auction for a long time. And uh, there's this infamous, you know, article that everyone always, you know, sends me when they're first getting into it about watch companies bidding on their own watches at auction from like 13 years ago. And they're like, see, it's all just shill bidding and the auction houses bidding it up. But this kind of transitions to the, the next point I want to make, which is about Ralph Ellison's Omega Speedmaster. I, I think there is a place for Rolex to have the best examples of all of their iconic watches in their collection and use it to educate people. They obviously haven't seen it as a priority. They have pretty much more money than God. Uh, so they could obviously buy these things if they wanted. And it's a foundation and, um, they should be educating people about the history of these watches. They should have great reference examples in their collection for designers to look at for inspiration uh, that work there because typically watch designers really aren't watch collectors and don't really understand or have have good pieces. I know uh, Nick Bebeck, who's a friend of mine who started at Tag Heuer this year is their kind of curator of their archives likes to show the product designers the watches because they really don't know much about these vintage models at all and he at least has things on hand that he can show them that they can use for inspiration so um i think i, I would love to see rolex participate more to actually build a great collection of watches that they can be proud of that they could use to show nice pieces in on instagram uh in the past i think both Rolex and Patek Philippe have felt their only competitor are their vintage models. They don't want their vintage models to become cooler than their new ones and overshadow their new watches. But I don't think either brand has every, anything to worry about on that front. They're, they're, they're both stronger than ever and people aren't going to stop trying to buy Rolex watches at retail because they suddenly decide they want to get a vintage five, five, one, three. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would like to, you know, I, I think I would I would personally obviously love to see vintage Rolex do even better at auction and, and see more great pieces come up for sale. There were not a lot of standout Rolex watches that came up for auction this year. Part of that is the market is pretty well set. You know, when I get a big, big vintage Rolex, I know who to go to. I don't need to consign it at auction. And uh, the vintage Rolex community is on Instagram 24-7, ready to buy anything that shows up on someone's feed. The only time to consign a watch to auction from my perspective is if something, the value is not really known, uh, or if there's so much hype around it, you think it'll go a lot higher than it would otherwise go. Uh, Charlie, what do you think? I mean, this ties into it, and, and I'll, I'll just kind of... I'll just kind of throw this one out there before we go into uh, Omega, but like the right time to consign a watch. I mean, and speaking of value proposition, there was one particular watch that, you know, jumped out and somebody got a sweet deal on it. It was that um, that Hulk over the weekend, I guess. Gabriel, since you're our uh, resident pessimist, what are, what are your thoughts on this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, well. I don't have any thoughts on that that are positive, um, as you can imagine. 
Uh, I have it on good authority that the, this was between two people who just had no limit, and it was it was game of chicken. It didn't really matter what was what they were fighting over. Uh, just so happens that it's that it's a Hulk. Um, I will be very. Um, don't I'll get back. a I'll get a good laugh if I see Hulk's going for a hundred grand on Chrono Twenty Four tomorrow. I mean, it's you know I, I I think I said this to Tony. There there are a couple of things that that we saw at auction where it's like, dudes, do you not know how to use Chrono Twenty Four? Like, uh, come on, you know, it's there are a couple of things there that people were were going totally nuts for. Just uh, you know. Another example, which which I, I'm I'm actually not as as upset with, but I there was a uh, a longer one, one hundred one point zero zero one, that wasn't from nineteen ninety four, so it's not really the desirable version of it. It's uh, you know it, the the desirable one is the nineteen ninety four solid case back, Breguet overcoil intact. That's what you want for a zero zero one. This was in 1997, and I don't know if somebody thought it was a 94 uh, or they just knew and they just went above and beyond. For 97, that's a little bit high for something that's not that rare, especially in the long one catalog, talking about rare ones for that time period. It's the desirable time period, but that 1994 has all the nerdy coolness that you would want. The Breguet overcoils are rare because they realized after they launched the brand that they were annoying to service and they took up too much time trying to adjust them. So they swapped them out at service. So the, the number with uh, intact Breguet overcoils is actually quite low comparatively because it was only used in that first year and most of them have been serviced since then. Service costs are a little bit higher, obviously, so people just swap them out you know i didn't find it offensive obviously i just i just thought maybe somebody thought they were getting something that they weren't um because it's an easily it's an easy mistake to make um but yeah i, I don't really have much to say about the hulk i mean you know they could they were what 10 blocks from 47th street they could have gotten one for you know five times less if they walked yeah you know, yeah, the whole thing was funny. I mean, in the room, literally, people would pull up Chrono Twenty Four. They were like, we were looking around at each other, confused. Like, is this really happening? Um, so it's it was just weird to see. And um, yeah, I don't know. I find something like that and more offensive than perhaps the the Tiffany paddock. I mean, the Tiffany paddock is, you know, it's like a seventy five million dollar house in Malibu or something. It doesn't really impact my day to day life. Whereas uh, if people start paying hundred thousand dollars for a hulk um that could have impacts on on the broader rolex market i don't know but maybe they'll see this for what it is which is uh, a couple one-off people uh going a little bit crazy or not having enough coffee that morning we'll see um i think the longa point is interesting too we brought up perth wrote an article about longa ones recently and about identifying early versus later dials and it feels like to gabe's point people are still learning about longa and what's important and what's rare and stuff like that and it takes time for collectors to get intelligent like a brand about a brand and longa is still a relatively young rebirthed brand and i think it takes time for people to figure out exactly what it is they should be seeking in brands like longa before they before the brand fully matures i suppose um obviously Prices are going crazy on Longa. The Porla Metre Torbillon went for a bunch of money this past this past week. So it's exciting to see the brand developing. But I think along with prices, uh, scholarship, if you will, needs to continue to build as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's 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 an easy brand to to get confused because they they've had a lot of these models running for you know in their catalogs for about twenty years. And subtle differences um, when you look at, for example, the life cycle of the datagraph, the first gen datagraph, it's like 10 years. And then they updated it to the up down and that you can tell the difference, but it's the same thing with, you know, the 15, 18, the 18, 15 chronographs, they have different dial variations for different generations that they call them, but somebody who's not really 
you know, well-versed in that, you, you, you wouldn't be able to recognize it very easily. And even someone who is relatively well-versed at first look, if you're just looking at somebody's wrist quickly, it's very hard to catch those nuances. I mean, it's, but again, it, there are some really beautiful nuances in, in, you know, in Longa and everything, almost everything that they've offered. Um, but it is cool to see some of the more unknown pieces pop up. We've had a couple of yellow jackets pop up, you know, obviously a couple of variations of the PLMs have come up, but also more of the Longa ones. This is uh, from my memory, this is one of the first times I can remember a 001 at auction uh, or at a big auction. And yeah, sure, we've seen the steel ones. Um, we've seen steel ones both sell, pass, and all of that. And that that's always been a rare watch, something they've never really fully, um, you know, uh, gone, f- you know, commented on how many have been made. But I thought also the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the tribute pieces that they made, Apparently that guy bought all of them, and I thought that was that was interesting to have the whole set because it's it it is desirable, but it's not the most desirable. Um, but you know, it, it's a very cool, uh, a very cool piece. And actually, something that we they that isn't particularly known is that there was recently at auction. I think it was an antiquarium somewhere. Um, they had a pocket watch with the original movement of this and and you know that i think was only like twenty thousand all in and you know it has one of these like sterile dials with nothing on the dial very beautiful but the same movement um so it's kind of like the prototype if you will of this so i think you know there's there's a lot you know there's a lot going on with longa we've seen some of the uh world war ii longas come up also um you know, I think those are actually stronger than the IWC Axis watches. Um, I I know those have had a stigma for a while, just like the Panerai ones had a stigma for a while. But I think just in terms of rarity, people are are aware how rare, uh, you know, the Longa the Longa World War Two watches are. Interesting fact about that: the only known Hitler watch is he actually gifted to somebody happened to be Longo watches. Um, so you know, either depending on your views, it's either a, a very good uh, endorsement or you know something troublesome. But you know, I, it's it's different, different type, different brand. So totally not kosher for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to. I think we should probably come out as an anti-Nazi, anti-Hitler podcast, real quick, uh, before we get canceled. Condemn all. all Listen, of it. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not trying to judge people on their views on it, but it was. It was interesting that it was at at, at Phillips, and it did actually do more than I. And full disclosure, I, I actually bit on it, um, just because it, it, it was unique. You know. By the way, I also bid on. Yeah, the course. man was part of the of Israeli course. army. I don't think we have to worry about allegiance. Um, <laughs> yeah, guys, please, please but, don't cancel Gabe before this end of this episode. But I did, I did bid on the on the Kamikaze watch at Philips Geneva because I thought it would be hilarious to own like a failed Kamikaze watch yeah, yeah. because you know the guy obviously didn't wear it into, into his mission and his like life's mission was to end his life this way and he failed. I just thought it was it those was are always funny. A novelty. Yeah. My life's yeah. mission is to change the subject at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. As I can only say, a friend who's a Jewish collector said no Nazi willingly gave up his watch. So just remember that. <laughs> Every watch was taken <laughs> off a body. <laughs> so I just want to follow up on the points Gabe made about Long and sort of Antoni as well, the broader situation. I think it's a very simple, simple formula to see uh, watch prices go up. And it starts with scholarship and research and people beginning to understand something. I've seen that time and time again. So Langa, Langapedia, passionate people like a Langa Journey, others, they really laid the framework for this happening, Langaholic, you know, years ago. And, you know, having like the Langapedia resource online to read about these watches and in a very beautiful way, um, I think helped lay the groundwork for everything we're seeing now. Um, you know, even without the brand necessarily doing anything 
different uh, than they have been for a long time. So, um, you know, when you start seeing all these collectors saying, I need a long one, which I've noticed happening a lot the last the last month uh, from from people who collect more sporty watches, you know, that's a very, uh, you know, it just shows kind of the hype and momentum around the market. And then obviously they, they did well at auction uh, this past week. Um, but, you know, part of that research and, and promotion, I would say, is encapsulated in a the small case study of Ralph Ellison's Omega Speedmaster 145.012-67 that was at Phillips. Uh, it was purchased in 2016 for under $6,000 from, from his auction uh, of his personal items. Uh, and it was bought by a collector named Ted, uh, it, who's on the dial on Instagram. You know, this is all public. This is in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and Ted got did the research obviously found photographs of Ralph wearing it clearly the same watch. Um, it was missing the top pusher when he purchased it, obviously sourced a pusher for it, uh, and then consigned it to Phillips. And it was, it could be a Harvard business school case study. I thought on really effectively promoting the sale of a watch. Um, you know, it started with, uh, my friend Gary Steingart writing a great article about it on in the Wall Street Journal. Um, my friend Henry Flores was quoted on it as well. Uh, he reposted it. Then it went to Hodinkee. Jack Forrester wrote about it. Then it went to every conceivable publication that covers watches, whether it's Rob Report, uh, tons more. Every single time it was, you know, written about Ted reposted the the article so i kept seeing on the dial in my feed and it was like felt like at one point it was five articles a day being written about this watch then there was something absolutely unprecedented as far as i know um omega actually announced they were going to be bidding on the watch before the auction uh that was announced in revolution a, a couple days before i've never heard of a brand announcing they would be bidding on a watch in a sense, it's them, it's them like encouraging bidding the watch up because you assume that they're going to go pretty high. And when you announce it publicly that you're going for it, you would expect them to get it. So in a sense, it's like, come and get me, you know, come and try to get this watch. Uh, obviously, it sold for almost $700,000, um, you know, 100x, uh, over 100x of what it sold for in uh in 2016 and it's a really wonderful story from omega's perspective they have you know one of the most important uh you know black writers of the 20th century they now have his omega speedmaster the amount of press that went out about this watch was easily worth more than a million dollars from my perspective you know a full wall street journal article Rob Report, Hodinkee, everything else. I mean, if they wanted to replicate that kind of press in such a serious way, it would probably be a lot more than a million dollars. Um, so uh, I thought it was really a feel-good story uh, because it was it was really about Ted trying to still to tell the story about this watch and about Ralph rather than trying to, you know, clearly do it just for the money. Um, but uh, it was it was a textbook uh, case study. Uh, I've I've never seen anything like it. It was really cool to see when you walked into the preview room at Phillips. They had obviously they had photos of the Daniels pocket watch sort of blown up on the wall, and maybe a couple of Rolexes. I can't remember, but right next to that was also a big photo of uh, Ralph Ellison, and some of the photos had him wearing the Speedmaster. So it was really cool that they committed to telling the story in that way physically as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's just really cool to see sort of an American author, a black one, like you mentioned, featured in a horology auction. And it feels like it's one of those things that the storytelling was important beyond just watches, right? It was like about a story and not really about the watch, which you don't get every day in the watch world or at watch auction. So it was one of the coolest lots to come up for auction. You know, it's great. Omega has a museum with, 
with some pretty neat watches, obviously JFK's Omega that he wore on his inauguration in 1961. They bought the Elvis Presley Omega a few years back at Phillips. And obviously they have uh, a couple Speedmasters on loan from NASA that went to the moon and were part of the Apollo missions. Uh, and then you've got Ralph Ellison's Speedmaster, which is very cool. Obviously before, before this auction cycle, I had no idea that Ralph wore a Speedmaster. It was just not on my radar. And, you know, before the auction, I would have, I would have, before all the press, I would have, you know, tentatively said, you know, this watch will sell for 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. So, so I think it really was all the, the press really, really jacked the price up. Plus Omega saying publicly they were going to bid on it before the auction, which is unprecedented. That's going to do it for episode five of Significant Lots and our New York auction recap. Thanks everyone again for joining us and we look forward to talking to you again soon.